0: Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Chas Mostad. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hey, I'm Scott Pipe. Hi, I'm Nick Perkat. You are listening to Inside Supercars. For sure, I think if I get to drive more and more and more, uh, for sure, you know, I'm going to feel more comfortable. I nearly told him to calm down in the end. I'm like, mate, you're making me stressed. <laughs> I'm stressed enough as he is. In 2014, Chas Mostet and Paul Morris won Bathurst. The race finished at almost 6:30 and 5.2 million people were watching at the end of that race. So a quarter of the Australian population watched Chaz win that race. That's a pretty, you
1: know, compelling figure to, to drop on anybody.
0: <laughs> From the racetracks across Australia and around the world, here's Inside Supercars. And welcome to Inside
2: Supercars this week. After a wonderful uh, Philip Islands, uh, hello from Tony
3: Whitlock and Craig Ravel. Tony, I don't know if you've come across this stat, but in the two races across yeah. the weekend, yeah. it was seven different finishing positions until on the Sunday, Garth Tander bobbed up, who had finished in the uh, top three. So the top seven of each race were completely different from day to day.
2: Well, that's a uh, uh, Philip on the... Uh to the organisers of the category that uh, such uh, changes happen, but the tyres played a big part in it. And today we'll talk to Kevin Fitzheimer to go through and explain fully, no man is better placed as the operations manager Dunlop Motorsport, to tell us what actually happened. We'll also hear today from Ken McNamara of KRE Engines, obviously uh, he's been doing the 888 engines as well as other teams, enormous number of... Uh, his cars or his engines in cars at the weekend, I think 15 of the 68 cars. And then after Ken, we'll uh, hear from Steve Chopping. So, it's uh, first of all, let's go straight to Kevin Fitzsimon. No. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. We've been fortunate enough to get hold of Kevin Fitzsimon, Operations Manager for Dunlop Motorsport. And as you would believe and understand, that he's been extremely busy since the weekend. It started on Friday and has continued on. Ramping up uh, as he's uh, trying to uh, work through the problem that was uh, came to light at the weekend because there was no testing at Phillip Island. Unfortunately, uh, time and teams of unavailability, the track event, meant that there was no testing of this new tyre. But Kevin, it was an anomaly over the weekend, both Saturday and Sunday.
4: Yeah, how are you going? Um, yeah, what was it? it was. It um was. Uh, one of those curveballs balls that gets thrown at you every now and then. We know Phillip Island's uh, the toughest track on tyres that we go to. Um, the simulation package that we uh, we provided the teams earlier in the year, you know, the, the, one of the tracks that was uh, used in the simulation package, along with Bathurst, was Phillip Island. So we had a pretty good handle. We knew that the tyre was uh, well and truly up to the job. Um, you know, the factory put a good safety margin into it, but the teams are... Um, in general, found that the tyres is camber hungry. And when it's camber hungry, it's, uh, it's very fast. It's, uh, really fast, you know. And, um, yeah, you get some strange anomalies thrown up there. You know, teams that had issues on, uh, on uh, Saturday had nothing Sunday, um, because they made adjustments. And then other teams that didn't have anything on Saturday made adjustments to Sunday and, uh, created a problem, you know. So, uh, it's uh, one of those unfortunate things. It sort of disappoints everybody. You know, it disappoints us, supercars, the fans, the sponsors, the team owners, the drivers. It's, uh, it's an ongoing honour roll, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I've uh, uh, been onto the, the factory straight away on Monday and, um, you know, just sort of said, look, this is, this is what happened. Um, is there any other material around the place that can handle more heat? Um, because we, we believe it's, it's you know, heat orientated. And just just see, you know, just sort of just ask the question and, and see what's around. And, you know, if we need to go back to Phillip Island and test, um, then sure, certainly we can do it as soon as the circuit's available or if a team's available or multiple teams, um, yeah, we could do that.
2: This tyre is not due to be used again until October, is that correct?
4: Correct, that's right, yeah, for Bathurst okay. and then over to New Zealand in November.
2: Right. Um, and, of course, uh, the problem wasn't restricted just to the main game with uh, the soft tyre, but also... The Dunlop series, the D2 series, uh, Super 2 rather, series had that uh, Jacobson and Le both both
4: had a tyre blowout. Correct, um, yeah, that's right. It's so once again, you know, thing. like um, yeah, but yeah, sort of, it's it's that, that thing that the the teams are now starting to realise um, yeah, you can push the boundaries massively on the the, the car of the future chassis as far as camber goes. It's, it's you know, it's you can almost lay them on their sidewalls so that you can get that much camber on them and. Yes it's fast uh, but it's not fast for a, a race run you know like and you know for sixteen, seventeen laps around there it's it's not ideal um the um know, yeah, one of the one of the cars you just mentioned i know was it was quite high in the camber, and um it you know it, it paid the price unfortunately it's that type of thing, and a, a lot of um engineers will always put speed over risk and you know, it's like back uh, a few years ago before we had the tyre pressure monitoring system and the minimum pressure in place and everything, the uh, the structural integrity of the tyre is recommended to be you know, 29 to 30 psi hot. Um, but unfortunately, the tyre is half a second lap faster at 24. But to achieve your 24, you've got to be down, you know, 10, 12 psi cold, oh, and yeah. that's where the problem lays. And it's like it now, you know, the tyre, yes, it's incredibly fast with lots of camber on it, um, so you know we we just don't know whether the cars that have aggressive camber setups during qualifying to get the speed to to, to punch that one lap out, if that's doing the you know some damage to the internals of the tyre there that can't be seen with the naked eye, um, and then it manifests itself later on in the race. You know it's that type of thing. Phillip Island is unbelievably difficult on tyres as we know. If you're up behind another car. Um, particularly the guys that were following any of the Nissan's or anything, just saying there's just a massive hole of air in there, so you lose the, the downforce effect on the front of the car, and um, that just creates a bit more understeer, and then, yeah, you know, once again, once you get the understeer in, it cups the inside edge, so that's where the front tyres run into issues. Um, and then we had the ones on Friday as well, which were ex-Adelaide tyres. Both had been turned on the rim, right front from Adelaide. Um, both had done the same amount of kilometres. Uh, that type of scenario, so, yeah, it's just... Um, there's, there's lots of lots and lots and lots of data to go through for all the teams. Um, the recommendation was uh, put out on Sunday morning to increase the minimum pressure from 17 to 19 PSI. Um, and that did upset the apple cart with um, a few teams, the fact that they weren't able to, um, to run on it up until the race. Um, you know, we all had the pressures up in qualifying because you're only going out to do the one lap. But unfortunately, with time constraints, um, nobody actually then pressed on and ran around. And also, you don't want to put more miles on your tyres than you have to, you know. So it was just uh, one of those unfortunate situations. Uh, as I said, um, "Yeah, nobody was more devastated than I was. <laughs> I'm sure of that even... Yeah, you know, the, the guys that were running in good positions, there sort of thing, and that it's just... It's, you know, you put so much work into it and have it all sort of unravel in front of you like that and in front of the worldwide audience is, uh, is certainly
3: not ideal. Kevin, it's the design. critical yeah. thing there is that uh, the Dunlop Super 2 cars are on the old construction tyre, and although it's the same uh, compound, it was the old construction tyre in the Super 2s, the new construction tyre in the in the Virgin Australia's championship. Now that would indicate that it had, had something to do, more to do with engineering than it did have to tyres? Is that is that an assumption that you can make or you, I can't make that assumption?
4: Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's not, not so much... We're not sitting there... I'm not running out the back of the garage pointing fingers at all the engineers and everything, but it's certainly now they're starting to realise that the tyres the are fast with lots and lots of camber on them, but absolutely they're not reliable, they're not safe. You know, it's... Well, oh, not safe is the wrong word, but, you know, it's... It's um that type of thing it's it's like if you run down to your your local super cheap and 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 buy a three ton tow rope and you try pulling a ten ton truck and the tow rope breaks, and that you know is the tow rope faulty or or what you know it's it's that sort of scenario, and some other one with the beauty somebody threw up on social media the other day it's like you know going a, buying an iphone seven and then ringing apple and saying you're complaining because it doesn't work on the bottom of your swimming pool you know it's you have sort of you give the thing a parameter to work in, um and you can push anything to the excess and have it break. Mm. Um and yes, we've been criticised about the uh, the lack of testing at Phillip Island. We you know we've cr- criticised that um the tires failed in general, that they should be able to do the job. I mean you can put all sorts of exotic materials in the things, but people also need to understand that we've got um the two compounds of tyres, but the one construction that have got to do 16 different circuits. So you've got different temperatures from Darwin to what we have in Winton, um, massively different grip levels to what we have, you know, from from Perth to the likes of of Winton or Darwin. Again, you know, they've got pretty grippy surfaces now. And, you know, Eastern Creek, or sorry, Sydney might Park's, you know, pretty worn surface. So it's got to do a lot of different things. You know, the the massive braking applications that it gets at Tasmania with, you know, while while the thing's on full lock and they've got the brake pedal pushed through the firewall... Um, to the, the, the nature of Phillip Island with massive lateral loads to the huge vertical loads at Bathurst and everything. So the tyres far from 100% perfect because if I build a perfect tyre for Phillip Island, um, it'd be terrible at 15 other tracks we go to. It's just the fact of the, the matter. It's just the way it is. And it's it's a compromise. It's, it's got to be a steer tyre and a drive tyre. There's, there's massive amounts of things going against what would be the ideal package? And yes, you could certainly build specific circuit-specific tyres, no doubt in the world about it. But the, the cost is prohibitive, and then you'd, you'd the teams that need more tyres because they wouldn't have driven on it earlier in the year, so they have no practice tyres. You then got the situation of they've, they've got to set their car up around, so they need more track time. They need more tyres to do that. It just drives the cost up. So we're not on a um, cost-saving thing by by any means, and everything. But we've got a product that does the job. Admirably, when it's used within its perimeters, you know, that are set. And um, it's, you know, we've, we've knocked off records at every track we've been to this year, so we know the tyres fast, we knew it was going to be fast. Um, you know, it's just a matter of the teams actually setting cars up to make sure they're going to make the distances up to us to provide a product to them that can do that with enough safety margin in it that, um, should they be outside that setup, and that can come from a hit at turn one, you know, you look at the Saturday race there where you had like seven cars spear off and all coming back in and they're banging wheels and that knocks alignment settings out there. So you've got to allow for the cars that aren't in the perfect window and, you you know, as I said, we've got a safety margin built into the tyre, but the teams are way in exceeding that at the moment into figures that um, I was, not just myself, but other people absolutely staggered at, um, that they've been even contemplating running those sort of figures in a race, qualifying maybe, but... Um, that's the type of thing. So yeah, sure, you know, I've, I've been onto the factory and said this is this is what happened, this is what I believe the cause is. I'm sending samples back to uh, the factory in Japan for them to have a first-hand look at because you know you do so much with a with photograph that um, I've got a pretty good indication as to where the tyres were failing, uh, very high up in the sidewall where it meets the, um, the tread surface um, and it, um, the, the inner liner, which is what keeps the air in the tyre, um, was splitting because it was, you know, Philip Island with sawtooth curves. So you're coming onto the main straight, inherent understeer because the spool diff makes the car push a little bit. You've got the accelerator pedal pushed through the firewall trying to drive down the straight, and you hit those sawtooth curves, and you, the tyre all of a sudden becomes Angus Young with Ted head banging, you know, wobbling sideways. To, you know, it's, it's just a massive load on the tyre anyway. And then when you hit the curb and it grips, ungrips, grips, ungrips, grips, ungrips, and puts a huge oscillation through the tyre and it and it tears the inner liner, um, which then leaks the air into the sidewall and that creates a bubble. And uh, the bubble can be small. We had, we've got some fantastic examples on the weekend of, of ones that were just about to um, have an issue sort of thing, so that they were caught in time, so that was great. But then of course the bubble fails and unfortunately it happens at high speed. Um, so, or high load, you know, whether it be downforce load, braking load, um, uh, or, you know, the, the high speed going into turn one there. So that's the type of thing we, we've a pretty good, pretty good handle on what, what causes it. We've just got to stop it happening in the future. And if that's by regulation or by modification to the tyre, we'll, um, grab it with both hands and run with it because we don't want to be letting teams, drivers, team owners, sponsors, fans, or ourselves down you know it's not the business we're in we go racing to show that the product's good and you know i still believe it's good but it's just a matter of um you know use it to uh, use it towards the limit but don't push it past it
3: so to do yeah, that forensic examination kevin when the tire comes in shredded is there anything you can use off that tire or is it purely you've got to get the tire that's just about there
4: yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the situations of, um, using Sunday as an example, um, the uh, Jack LeBrock tyre in the Dunlop series race, right? um, the two uh, Shane Van Gisbergers and Jamie Winkup's tyres and everything, when they drive back to the pits, and all you've got uh, a bit of Kevlar and some sidewalls, it's it's impossible to tell. I mean, by that stage, we had a pretty good indication of why it was doing it. Um, drivers are fairly smart cookies at times, and certainly engineers are and everything that, you know, get them to drive back as fast as they can, so it deliberately tears the tread off the tyre and throws it on the track so the safety car has to come out, and they don't lose as much space on the track. There you go, there's one for you. Mm. Um, yeah, they sort of able to catch up to the, to the train again after they've had their pit stops, so. Um, you know, but yeah, it's it is difficult but we had one uh, in particular um from Friday that was X Clipsal Tire again that was used there in practice and it's the tiniest little bubble on the on the sidewall and we found a little tiny um tear about three millimeters wide on the inside liner and so we had that one put aside but then we had one during the race on Saturday that it um that uh, one of the teams came in and uh their scheduled a pit stop and it had a football hanging out the side of it. It was still inflated, had twenty six and a half PSI in it um which is still a bit low but it's um it may have already leaked some ear sort of thing but it um yeah when we opened it up uh, we took it off the rim and everything and it had quite a significant tear on the inside, right up in that top corner and straight away went, yep, bang, that's there it is, there's the answer and had that bubble burst and then all the air's gone and that's what Fabian said after his tire deflated um at the Grand Prix and the one that he had there on the weekend um on Friday that the old tyre if it was going to have an issue you could feel a vibration or you could hear a bit of a flapping or anything else this tyre doesn't and it's because of the rapid loss of air through the split in the sidewall so um, as I said I know where it is um, we just now need to know a way of getting around fixing it when the tyre's pushed way beyond its limit so that's what we'll simulate um, on the test uh, rig uh, in the factory and um, as I said there's a modification required um, to the to the tyre, we can look at that and then talk to supercars about doing another test down at Phillip Island. You know, it's the type of thing. We're not frightened of testing the tyre. We just um, want to put the best show on for everyone involved. You, of course, bring to
2: the job that when you started at Dunlop, um, experience wearing the Bridgestone hat, which was very similar at Bathurst. I think it was late nineties. Am I correct?
4: Yeah, correct. Craig, Craig, Craig Lounds, when he came back from Europe. Uh, Ninety six had a big one up the top. Um yeah. You know the the um, people. Uh, there's a lot of people on social media pointing out that the tyre failure with Fabian Coulthard there with the big roll at, at the chase on the first lap a few years back now, ten years ago now. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't actually a tyre. That was um, actually a broken wheel from contact on the grid. That the fate of that tyre. Yeah,
5: that's right. And unfortunately,
4: yeah. that crash was set um, 30 metres after the green flag was dropped. You know, he yeah. contact with with another car. It actually broke the flange of the wheel. So as soon as the tyre loaded up, it popped it off the bead. So. That was another story with that one, but yeah, most times you, you can actually rewind and, and find whether it was you know, if it's a front toilet, there was a lockup previous, or you know, the back edge of a sawtooth curve. You know, Tasmania, they're horrendous on the, the back edge of turn two. There, they're, they're quite high. They're, they're nearly 80 mil high from the surface on the bottom to the top edge of the peak of the, the concrete square, and, and you know that, that type of thing. The tyres are only three mil thick in the sidewall. Um, you know, you, you don't want to have you know, people say, oh, I'll make them secure and everything, but then they retain heat and heats the enemy of any race tyre yes. um, so, you know it's that, that type of scenario You, you it's um, sawtooth curves are, you know, they, they're convenient but they're uh, certainly horrible things as I said, the, the oscillations you see you see an F1 telecast and super slow-mo and that, the amount of wobble you get in the tyre which you yes. can't really see to the because they're spinning so hard but um, believe me, it's there you know, it's it's um and it just yeah, just it's just another load and the tyres already loaded up so much through that particular part of the track coming onto the the main straight there at turn twelve at Phillip Island, you know, it's uh, the lateral loads are higher than anywhere we we see by a significant amount. And this year with the speed they were doing they're actually um on that maximum G loading for um I think it was somebody said it was nearly ten seconds more than what they previously was. So, I mean the tire is under more load all the time there and you know, I didn't think I'd ever see the days we'd be seeing low twenty nines in a in a supercar at uh, at Phillip Island. But um, you know, the, the, the perfect lap time, if they'd hooked all the sectors, that was a twenty nine oh one, so which is just amazing. And as I said, the craziness of of Sunday with the minimum pressure going up and all the things, and Scott McLaughlin still took another three tenths off the record, which he broke it um, the two days prior, and he'd set the previous year in the Volvo, which we all knew was a fantastic car at the high speed circuits. Yeah. So um, it's a crazy world. You sort of sometimes scratch your head about all sorts of things, but um, as I said, we'll, we'll come through the other side of it and go from there. I
2: imagine you'll be looking forward to getting back
4: to probably a bit more sanity over in and in two weeks' time. Correct, yep.
5: I've yeah, that. obviously- a, that's a whole
4: different animal again. You know, yellow once again, has got the sawtooth curves and everything like that, but it's an incredibly low-grip circuit. So yeah. we're going from one extreme to the other, so it's low grip and very high wear because cars get a lot of... Um slide. get a lot of wheel spin there, but they also slide a massive amount. So um, that'll be another uh, challenge again, but if um, you're yeah, looking forward to that one, it'll be good. Kevin, I've, well, got, I've we'll got two more
3: questions for you, Kev. Um, yep. The test. Now, if you can go back for a test, one of the things you mentioned about was what damage can be caused from a qualifying run then into a race run – are you able, when you're doing a test, because I know there's quite stringent rules about what ca- teams can do to their cars, are you able to get a team to set their car up for a qualifying run, run, the t- run a couple of sets of tyres in qualifying mode and then come back later in the day, put them back on in, in what would be considered a race setup, Or is that outside the parameters of what t- the testing rules allow? OK, well, yeah, the,
4: the, the testing rules side of things isn't a problem. When, we, when you're doing a tyre development test... Um, the way we do it um, is we put the current spec tyre on. So, for example, if we won the clock back to May last year, we at Queensland Raceway, we put the current soft tyre on um, and then run that for a qualifying run. And then we run the um, new spec, whether it be a compound or a tyre or whatever. So you do the, the softs first and then you go to the hard tyre after that or vice versa, whichever way you want to do it we don't actually put qualifying setups on the car. We don't change a great deal. The pressures stay the same right the way through. So if we were going to do that down at Phillip Island, um, I don't want to deliberately go down there and induce a failure because um it's expensive and it could be dangerous. So you don't want to do that. But what I could do, we could certainly run the tyre at the high camber. We can take that set of tires off and I can return them to our aircraft facility um and you put them in what's called a shearography machine which is a bit like um, a stress fracture x-ray, and they use it for aircraft tyres, earth mover tyres, um, before retreading processes and things like that, so that they can actually see inside the tyre if there's any fractured cords or anything else. So we could actually see if the tyre is damaged um, from the, the, the excessive camber in, in qualifying. So that's that's one thing. But, I mean, it, you, know, you, you could have 20 qualifying runs and it might only be the one, one tyre that creates an issue. You know, on the weekend there, yes, we had... 18 tyre failures, but we supplied 992 tyres for the weekend. So you sort of sit back and go, well, you know, which ones do you send back and put in the machine? I mean, you're not going to fly them all back. It's um, more than a 747-full. There's no machine in Australia that can do that anymore. So that uh, therein lies a bit of a problem. But certainly there's there's things you can do. But, you know, it's um, um, depending on what you're going down there to try and achieve, uh, then yeah, you, if if it's a specifically a tyre braking test, then yeah, that's that's what you'd do. Um, you'd, you'd crank the camber on and, and, and things. But if you would just go down there to say right, we want you to go and do a 30 lap run, like a full tank of fuel run, um, at what you would call a recommended um, uh, camber setting, pressure setting, everything else like that, and you come through with flying colours, then yeah, maybe you could you could go up and just and just see, and you can sit back and go right, go and do another. 15 or 16 laps or something, whether it be on the same set or another set of tyres or whatever the case may be. So there's, there's lots and lots of ways that, that um, you know, the supercars, the technical panel can get involved, we get input from some pretty well all the engineers from the, from the teams and, and come up with a, a, a test plan for the day that works best to get the results that you're trying to achieve.
3: Mm. And finally, I know uh, in Clipsal, head office was absolutely wrapped with the feedback from how the tyres went. And I imagine at every other event, the positive feedback from head office on how the Dunlop tyres have performed with New Lap Records has been great. How how did head office react to a, a hiccup like Phillip Island? Oh,
4: yeah, absolutely. They're, they're all over it. Um, you know, we had plenty of people down there because our head office here, is here in Melbourne. So we had people down there on the ground, you know, sort of what's going on, sort of <laughs> it's, uh, that type of thing. You can't, you can't hide the fact you've got to, you know, got the lows with the highs as well. And, yeah, you know, we're not out there beating a chest, saying we've got an awesome product that um, will never let you down sort of thing. And it's it's not the nature of the game. You, you go racing to sort of prove that you've got a good product, that we believe we've got a good product. It's just a matter of, um, you know, everyone's finding limits. We're all learning it still, you know. Um, as, as we go, we, as we go on a different track next weekend, you're going to have guys that will find a setup that works really, really well or a strategy like Craig's... Uh, car did last year there where they pitted him you know when everybody else was running around and stuff like that he came charging through the field and won the race you know it's mm. you've just got to be able to re- react to things quickly but i mean the people at head office the you know the the uh, the product managers and right up to the, they're the right up to the top of the tree they fully understand the situation our MD was actually overseas um and was uh, was briefed on it pretty quickly as to what was going on he um' was a bit of a fan of the sport so um he uh, he certainly knew what was what was happening and asked me, uh, what's happening? Do you need any help?" Or yes, yeah, and uh, it's all good. You know, the, the support we've got uh, internally is uh, is very very good.
2: Kevin, thanks so much. We greatly appreciate your uh, explanation on uh, the, what's happened and uh, what's been done to try and circumnavigate uh, the problems, and uh, wish you well for a, a, a smooth sailing in Barbegalan. Yeah, it should be smoother, right? Just not the track surface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, from in no, the thank guys. Thanks, thanks, for thanks very much. Simon. Thank you, bye.
3: Definitely fascinating to hear just the the amount of uh, work that's going into an investigation when we're recording that just 2 days after the weekend finished.
2: Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm sure uh, Kevin Anzac day was not quite the one he was expecting it
3: to be. Mm, indeed. If he was Collingwood supporter then it got him away from the TV. I, a funny story. I once got told to interview Brock because the Collingwood game was going so badly. Um, <laughs> poor Wally Weissel said to me, call him up just to get him away from the TV. <laughs>
2: Uh, well, you see, I'm an, a, uh, an ABC supporter. What's an ABC supporter? Anyone but Collingwood.
3: Yes, indeed. <laughs> but we do digress. It was an interesting weekend, to say the least. And uh, for Fabian Coulthard, two race wins in a row. For Chas Mostert, a first win in two years. That, that was fantastic, Tony.
2: Yes, indeed. Um, and, look, it's wonderful to see uh, Reynolds up there as well. That was uh, truly tremendous. Because that little team... They had a dreadful Saturday, you know, their cars qualified well, Dave Reynolds in the top ten, just outside to Dale Wood, and both of their cars DNF'd on Saturday, but then they came back with Dave getting a podium place, which is fantastic for Erebus. Mm. and uh, a real indication of some uh, grit and determination by a lot of team members there who are quite new to the sport, led by some people who are very
3: experienced at it. Mm, indeed. And I do laugh. They keep saying uh, Erebus is punching above their weight. But when you when you speak to Barry Ryan, as we did a few weeks ago, he's not saying we're punching above our weight. He's oh. saying we are getting the results we should do from the effort we're putting in. And I, yeah. I think that is the that is the, always the thing. Uh, nothing pisses Brad Jones off more to hear about the yeah. little team from Albury. He goes, and,
2: and- Great racing across all three uh, supercar and V8 categories at the weekend. A fair number of different, different winners. Um, Jack LeBrock was one of uh, several in the uh, development series, of the Super 2s, that uh, had a car failure. But um, it was great to see that uh, there was so much good racing down there.
3: Yep, and Todd Hazel was still uh, in a good position there in his uh, very, very uh, self-funded effort, isn't it?
2: Yes, indeed. Mm. Yeah, interestingly, uh, um, I hear you know talk of Matt Stone Racing being uh, promoted to go, you know, pushed by people to go into the main series. Well, apparently there are people who are pushing who aren't going to uh, subsidise him or uh, bankroll him, but uh, would like to have new blood in the main series. But it's such a giant step. You can run two or three cars in the development series, but then one car in the main series is uh, just. something
3: else. Indeed, but uh, of course uh, since we were last on air the Super 2 Uh, wild cards into the main game have been announced and it's going to be very interesting to see how the teams step up and how they play their role and what the drivers can do because uh, quite obviously if a Super 2 driver can out-qualify some of the established main game stars, they're going to be uh, certainly increasing their chances for a uh, promotion come uh, the silly season. Yeah,
2: yeah, and it's it's all about future employment there, I imagine. Mm Indeed. Indeed. And after the break, we'll go to Ken McNamara and hear about the intricacies of being an engine builder in this development stage of the Gen 3 engines and what it is like coping with such a large fleet of cars at a very big meeting with so many supercars on the track.
0: Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page, and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com
3: Hi, I'm James Moffat. Hi, I'm David Reynolds, and you're listening to Inside Supercars.
1: We
2: welcome this week to Inside Supercars, Ken McNamara of KRE Engines. Good day, Ken.
1: Tony, hey, how you going?
2: I'm well indeed. Craig Levelle, myself, just gave a few questions for you. Nothing, Trick. Obviously, another big weekend. This time, you had a very large weekend with 15 of your cars, or for your engines on cars.
1: Yeah, it's a big, busy weekend. Um, we normally have them at Adelaide. You yeah, know, those tracks, where you've got um, the Super 2 Series and, and also a bit of Kumo. Yeah, the car's filtered down there over the years, all so mainly probably AAA chassis. But, yeah, we still, most of the motors are still current to what we run now, so they're still the same sort of spec, really. OK.
2: All right, so where, where I mean, I first met you when you were at Larkin Motorsport, but where did yeah. you start your love of motorsport?
1: Um, yeah, I don't really know, because Mum and Dad never really were involved in it. I grew up in Melbourne and then... I moved up to to Brisbane in nineteen eighty six and with the I was, was a motor mechanic at the dealership and the panel beater was a drag racer and I started going to um Search Paradise and all those places to Castle Ray for drag racing and then yeah, just sorta of did more and more of it and um and um sorta of just yeah, just evolved into really more engines.
2: So it was about 92, 93 when you started doing supercar engines as we now know them? No, probably
1: I started full-time supercars back in 97. The 98 was my first year with Stone Brothers when we went to Bathurst with Brighty had that with me, and that was my first full-time year of supercars. I started KRE back in about 95, I think, and then I had a, I had a big robbery back in the day and I sort of, that sort of sent me doing a bit of supercar work, so that's how I sort of got into it. Right, okay. And, of course,
2: now you uh, have both the supercar engines and also sprint cars. How many in sprint cars is the way your business is run between those two categories?
1: Um, sprint cars, next year is our 25th year of building sprint car motors and 20 years next year for supercars, so it's probably workload-wise probably 60, 60% of the sprint cars. Um, we, we probably build 60 Seventy motors a year, like new ones and rebuilds us for spring cars. So they, yeah, they keep us um, busy, and then the and then the supercar stuff. It's mainly that way. The workshops jigged up all your machinery and your people everything's jigged up for those, to, and you keep the inventory in stock for those engines. So that way, you're not doing a bit of everything where you know, it just takes too long to get parts out of America. So you've got a
2: staff of thirteen, and they work for sort of roughly across both of those engine
1: sort of specifications. Yeah, I have. I have um, Two dedicated engine builders for the supercar and two for the sprint car. So they for probably ninety percent of the year they just stick with that. And then if we have a busy spurt, they'll swap over. But um, then we have two machinists and obviously spare parts guy. I do all dyno work, um, office people. So then we have guys stripping them. So each, each person has their job. Well, I try and cross them over a little bit so they learn a bit. But we try and keep each person in that one job just to have good continuity. And 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 um, you know we're not a chance of things going wrong because of the person's experience at that particular um, job.
3: The two engines, the sprint car engine and a supercar engine, can uh, are different beasts, although they're basically a V8 block with uh, pistons that go up and down. How big a difference is the horsepower rating on an aluminium sprint car engine to a, to a supercar engine?
1: Well, sprint car motors, there's not much rules on them as long as they're 410 cubic inch. You know, the these days, yeah, you, you know, they make about 900 horsepower. Most guys race around with 850, but because um, you're normally taking power away from them just to make it easier to drive. But, but a supercar, you know, you're sort of stuck at about 640, 650 horsepower, which because we have now have that maximum power limit rule. Um, but yeah, the, the sprint cars are really you can use the power in qualifying on some tracks, but generally for the rest of the night, where we spend, we take anywhere up to 100, 150 horsepower away from the motor during the night, so they can actually race with it better.
3: Alcohol is obviously a much different beast too to what we've got with the uh, ethanol fuels. So how much difference in performance do you find there?
1: Oh, with the alcohol, you can up the compression ratio. Like We run you know, 16, 17 to 1, so it keeps them reasonably reliable up there where the E85 is still good for the supercar because there's a fair bit of safety margin in it. But uh, um, alcohol, yeah, you've got to be a little bit more conscious with the corrosion and stuff that can happen in the system, but most of the guys are pretty good at that because they, they know what they've got to do if they let it sit around for a while and they told and everything.
2: <laughs> How much of the space of your time in both those categories has the engine specification changed? I mean you obviously look at times of different camshaft profiles and different valve springs and different valves and things like that but the overall specification of the engine has there
1: made much change in that twenty-something years? Yeah when we started building sprint cars even though they were smaller cubic inch back in the day but even the 410 stuff cylinder head's been the biggest gain like even in the supercar, you know, you, you modify your cylinder tweak it, tweak it and you, that's where you we're. Know, we've shot, I think in the last, since supercars, we, we've been averaging, I think probably four horsepower a year, when you look back uh, especially the last ten years um, of where the engines were to where they are now, and obviously we're limited with the rule, but sprint cars, same you know, you, we had a gain there about five years ago when new cylinder head come out and they made like 60, 70 more horsepower so with the same cam and same piston everything so it's slowed up a little bit now because you you don't have to make those big gains all the time but the cylinder really and and also materials you can turn more rpm with the engines in the sprint car a lot of those guys turn 9000 rpm all the time now and they're quite they do 20 races and they're quite reliable where 10 year ago you you couldn't go past 8200 you were
2: involved, in fact at the time when uh, uh, mercedes were looking at one of the stone brothers engines which was your engine
1: Yes, back in the thing yeah, that was yeah when we sort of you know um, back in the T8 thing when we sort of started to do our, our, our own deal, but yeah they I think they got a bit of a shock when they saw it and went oh <laughs> you know the push pusher engine is is a you know and when you look at all the team collectively over the years you know we're Stone Brothers you know Triple Eight you know HRT everyone has done a good job of the motor if you put all that information together there's a lot of money means you work on horsepower to cubic inch. Yeah, the, the supercar motor is is right up there with all your pro stock and NASCAR engines because it's it's quite well for a 305 cubic inch motor. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And you're involved in the development of the next General Motors uh, engine, the V6
1: twin turbo. Yep. What stage are you at with that? Well, we just we were over in there a couple of weeks ago, just going through some stuff with them. So we're yeah, you know, their The plan was to run a, a revised version of their Cadillac engine, um, which they run over there already now. But um, yeah, they're still you know a little behind, just working out how that spec's going to work out. So we've sort of got a bit of work to do over the next couple of months on how all that's going to unfold. But um, it's sort of going back to a like it was back in the early days. If you're holding through our weight, back to a factory engine with you know an aftermarket crank
5: and con rods and stuff, and
1: trying to bring the engine back to more more what the cars are running. You know, as a road car engine like it was back in the old Group A days. Right, okay. Are, Are you they encouraged stu- by what you see? Oh, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Me personally, I like the eights. That's sort of what we predominantly do in our business. So, um, but, yeah, this is all commercial thing with the motor companies wanting to run, um, you know, more relative to the road car thing. And you can see it obviously happening in other classes around the world, so it's... You know, as much as NASCAR with a lot of V8 and they sound good and everything, you know, the turbo's a lot wider and a lot of different. But then the younger generation, that's all they're growing up with. They don't have an old Falcon with a 351 in it and, you know, everything's turbo, small engines. So it's much for us older people. We, we like to keep what we got, but I think, you know, you've got to move on with the times. Yeah. And are you contracted by
2: two Triple Eight for that engine or is that direct with Holden or?
1: At, at the moment, we're just working with 888s, with I mean, because they, they've taken over the, the whole thing with Holden. So it's more GM, like I said, is once they work out all their commercial side of how they want to um, do the engine program, well, then we'll know we have, if they build them there we, we they build the first spec and we build the rest for here. You know, it's a matter of what teams want to swap over. So they've, they've got a lot of stuff to sort of find out before they can... Um, um yeah, make it all but that's yeah, that's the way they're holding on ahead so we're we're still pushing on hard with it. And and they obviously uh Triple Eight are obviously
2: also building the body and the chassis for this new yep. car. Um have you actually seen some mock up of that? I'm not actually disclosing it.
1: Isn't no. It? No, no, I actually haven't seen I mean I, I don't I don't go over there too often, you know, we're busy flipping motors back and forth back with T eight, but no, I think they're still waiting because obviously all that stuff comes out of Germany now, so I think they're just waiting on parts and stuff to try and um' because, you know, I suppose a lot of the engines are gonna be affected around the aero of the car. So obviously you've got intercoolers and all that stuff now, which supercars never had before. So Craig from supercars, you know, they're they they're they're, they're gonna try and get an engine running in, in the car so they can understand what's happening with it also. There'll be a lot of work, I think you know, we all underestimate how it's gonna be, but uh, um you know, the turbo's gonna drain a lot more heat, so you're gonna have a lot more issues with radiators and things like that. So it's going to be a fairly steep learning curve. It's just a matter of getting a, a car out there running and trying to understand, you know, from paper to the racetrack, if, if it's all going to, you know, correlate.
3: From what you're seeing, Ken, is there going to be a significant change in the price for you to be able to supply an engine?
1: Hard to say. I don't think so. Um, they were trying to, to to head down that way, but you know, if you still if you've got an engine that makes 650 horsepower. You know, you still need good components. You, you know, the to make it cheaper, really, you've got to do stuff that, yeah, unless it'll, unless you can make it last longer. So instead of doing it like we, we do, up to three, three and a half, four thousand kilometres now. Like, driver lace motors have been in since the test day, and they'll do Perth and come out. So that's really a third of the season. So you're only doing three rebuilds a year now. But if you can make it last a bit longer. Um, well, yes, that's, that's where the cost saving will come from. But the initial price of the engine, you've still got to have a good crank, good block, all that sort of stuff, even though some of this stuff's road car. I still, um, you know, you've still got turbos now. You've got intercoolers. And still, you can't put a $500 intercooler on. It's still going to be expensive because the level of the supercars is, is is quite high quality. You know, it's really hard to, to put cheaper components in the car because nine times out of ten, something's going to fail. You would have just missed the uh, Sierra Turbo days. Yes, yeah, I was working in the machine shop when they were, when they were uh, when I was working there. I remember honing and fixing them all the time from Dicks when They were, they were giving them a hard time on the dyno, but yeah, I, th- I I think this will be a different deal. Then now we've got a maximum power limit, and, and the rules are supercar do a very good job of policing everything. Um, I think that'll be a whole whole different scenario, but but. It, I mean, I still think that the naturally aspirated engine could have an advantage somewhere, and the turbo engine could have an advantage. So once they get those, you, know, you look how close the field is now, once they get all that sorted in the first six months, they should be able to sort of nail down a, a fairly good boost curve and stuff where they can control the engine. Drivability will be tricky because, you know, you always have turbo lag and stuff, which is something that the drivers will have to adapt from, from a, a V8 engine. So those things are always going to be there as a... Um, there's a difference, but, you know, how they look after the tyre, that could be another another thing.
2: Well, that's a very interesting insight into the world of engine builders. From from Phillip Island, um, have you got, uh, you know, a massive workload or is it just a normal sort of load from... Uh... No,
1: no, we'll be pretty good. Um, um, we'll get technos apart. Um, they'll just have to take another one as a spare of T8s and then... Um, um, like I said, we'll dyno with the motor. We'll get the motors back probably tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow night, and then we'll dyno all T8s and put them back in the cars for Friday. And then um, we're just another, finishing another new engine off now because obviously T8 sold four cars last year, so we had to replace four engines. So that'll give T8 enough spares again for this season. And then um, and then yeah, we really just got to then concentrate on the on the V6 thing and, and keep working hard on that for the second half of the year.
2: Well,
1: um, your sprint car season is almost at an end, I think. Yes. Yeah, just about done. Most of them stop racing at Easter, so they'll they'll all start lobbing back in the workshop, shortly for rebuilds. So um, get them ready. A lot of guys will go and race up in Darwin over um, August, so they'll start early. So um, so we'll get some of them done. And, but, yeah, at least right now it's probably our quiet time in the workshop. You know, normally start of the year is very busy, getting ready for Clipsal and sprint car season three times a week, and then obviously especially... July, or September, again, ready for Bathurst as well as um, um, speedway season start. So it's, yeah, normally just at these two months is our breathing time. Do a bit of R&D and stuff in these months.
2: And your uh, biggest overseas exercise
1: will be going to PRA? Uh Yeah, trying to do that every two years. Um, um, it's hard to leave. To, we did some racing in Las Vegas there um, a couple of weeks ago with the World of Outlaws with some motors we sent over so um, it was good to go and do that but it's very hard to, to get time to go and spend it much any time in America. Like A lot of the customers can be over there for a month or two racing because it's just hard to be racing a workshop because there's so much supercar racing on during the middle part of the year. So um, it's good to go because you definitely learn things, you see different things, and, and you like learn something every day. So it's good to see what other people are doing and and see how the motors run on different size racetracks. Yeah, Indeed.
2: Well, thank you very much, Ken. Um, we'll probably come back to you later in the season if we can, just as getting ready yeah. to go and have a chat yep. there. Having a look at the season so far with PLA showing, obviously, speed, there were problems why like your cars and your particular cars, Triple cars, had problems, but it would seem that there's reasonable engine parity across the category. I think so.
5: When, you, when
1: we look back, you know, was it three years ago when they did the... Um, the, uh, dying to everyone's motors and we, we had a bit of an advantage back then and I think everyone's, it's been good now you know, everyone's very similar in power and, and, and it's going to come back to your power curve and how they drive ability some tracks, some motors be better than others and 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 how they look after the tyre so yeah, I think the supercars have done a good job of keeping the, the cost, I mean money, the tens of money will still spend and definitely fine little, little um, things and you know, um, D J. Pensey's doing a good job there now, especially with Ludo. He's 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 quite clever. He, he chassis and engines. He, he understands everything. So they'll um and they've got good guys there. and They've always had good stuff. So they'll all pieces of the puzzle. Two good drivers, and yeah, it's it's definitely up the game. Where T A. now and 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 L C P R A are, are, are quick too. So it's a um it's just like the any sports or people thing. You just got to get everyone everyone working together and and. and drivers and then everything just sort of falls into place with the results well thank you again ken of
2: Engines. look forward to chatting again and seeing your results watching through the year yeah no i sense that honey, no problem now uh, after this break we'll be talking with steve chopping not so much about uh, philip island because he wasn't there in his steward's role Buy things back about Phillip Island, the developments there, the things that happened on the Saturday, and also about his larger role in Formula One, where he's been a Formula One steward for some years, both in Melbourne and Malaysia. I think he's back from Bahrain. So after the break, we'll come back with Steve Chopping.
0: The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world
3: yeah I mean it, it means a lot you know through the years a lot of reference this race is one of our majors 600 miles around here is no easy task we
0: uh, were able
1: to beat the two to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final which uh, we were able to um, take the win off him so it was, uh, yeah it was a great weekend for the uh, representative family
0: Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au Hi I'm Shane Van Gisbergen Hi I'm Jamie Winkup Hi, I'm Nick Perkap you are listening to Inside Supercars
2: and welcome back to Inside Supercars. As we mentioned, we've got Steve Chopping on this week to to give us the intricacies and the ins and outs of being a steward, not only in supercars, as he's done for many years, but also in the wider world of FIA and Formula 2, just back from Bahrain, and we'll get around to that, but I'd like to start off with Steve with um, your background in motorsport, how you fell in love with it, how you got
5: involved in it. Oh, um, I, from, uh, I think the earliest magazine that I can remember reading was in the early 50s, which was the uh, Green Motorsport magazine from England. Yep. Um, my old Man was involved um, as a competitor in reliability trials for many years in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. He was also one of the uh, people who was quite active in building Baskerville. And oh, please? I'm sorry, I missed that. His first name? Brian. In fact, um, got a CAMS uh, uh, service star um, a long time before I did. He was involved as a competitor, then as an official, and as a steward until um, he died in 1993. And uh, I'd been the, um, I'd had an interest right from the start. But in fact, when I was in uh, first year high school, my science teacher had a blue Renault Gordini, the same as my mother. His his brother, Tony Cameron, uh, raced it. I was intrigued to see what sort of times that did around Baskerville, so I became a timekeeper when when I was 12, soon after that was the chief timekeeper, then I was the assistant clerk of the course, then I was the uh, clerk of the course and the president of the Hobart Sporting Car Club for some time. We were promoters of uh, some pretty substantial events in the 70s, including the uh, Tasmanian 10,000 sports sedan race. Yeah. We. Uh, Had uh, the innovations of Grid Girls and the top 10 shootouts and a number of other things that um, probably people have forgotten uh, that uh, the first time they ever took place in Australia was at Baskerville. And um, more people never knew about it rather than have forgotten about it. (laughs) All right. Yes. Well, sometimes I wonder whether I've forgotten more than I know at stages too, Tony, but um, I've been involved as both as a um, uh, an administrator at the club level, a race official. Um, I'd done uh, reporting for Racing Car News as a photojournalist, and also some other radio station stuff and uh, newspapers in Tasmania. I Went think- on. I thought those silly old bastards in cams were um, not doing the best for the sport, and I decided that I wanted to uh, try and make a difference, and so I became involved on the cam side from uh, the mid to late 70s and. It's gone on from there, now I'm probably older than those silly old bastards and uh, probably the people, the sort of person that uh, people are tilting at at this stage, but no, at least I, my I conscience think... is clear and I think that what I've done has been in the interest of the sport because, you know, um, start and finish I'm an enthusiast and I do it for, the, uh, for, the mo- for road motorsport, motor racing, the people, the cars, the technology and everything else that's involved.
2: I first knew knew of your name, actually, as that uh, photojournalist and uh, remember seeing your byline on photos in Racing Car News because you might remember, Steve, I'm of that fame. My first race meeting was Silverstone
5: in 1956 and I was five years old. (laughs) I was just a bit Um, niggly because my old man went to the Albert Park um, Australian Grand Prix in 1956 and didn't consider that I was old enough to go, so... um, (laughs) Now, my, disappoint, things, my a- disappointments in motorsport started a long time ago.
2: Yeah, but we should actually make mention. Concurrently with your involvement as the sport and a lover of the sport, was your uh, seeking a legal degree?
5: Yes, um,
2: Not the, the um, sort of thing to do.
5: Um, well, I'd, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. I'd wanted to be a lawyer from an, a very early age, and I've been lucky to um, both achieve uh, the profession that I wanted. I've never had a job interview in my life, and uh, I was also able to do, I think, pretty well everything and some amazing things in motorsport that um, really, when it all boils down to it, I've really been living the dream uh, from when I was about 12 years old. I'll take you to point on
2: that because I do not believe in that line about good luck. It's your good management that's got you where you are and got you what you've done, all right? So do not for one second believe fall into the trap of saying... Oh yes, it was just my good luck. No, no. You know, a great believer in people make their luck. And sir, so I believe full-heartedly that you got to where you are and doing the things you're doing because of your good management. Well,
5: thank you very much for that. I'm flattered, Tony, but um, sometimes it's a bit hard to see a poor simple country boy from Baskerville um, getting on to do those things that I've done. But uh, I... At the 500th Grand Prix, Peter War, who was then the team manager of Team Lotus, and I sat down, and uh, the only other people at our table were Fangio and his interpreter, and uh, that was the ultimate for me. At a later stage as a lawyer, and by connection with Targa, I was able to act for Sterling Moss, who's another absolute gentleman, and uh, so I've met some amazing people. I've been able to do some pretty amazing things. So uh, uh, they, say to you, they say you get out of something what you put into it, and uh, uh, I don't think that motorsport's in, in any way to me at all because I've got some absolutely amazing times out of it, and uh, what, I still do it for enjoyment.
3: You do raise an important point, though, Stephen. When we look at motor racing around the country, we are having trouble. Filling every single position and even replacing the older stewards and older officials. And I guess that is one of the, the critical things that uh, CAMS and, and, and other organisations need to really promote what it is to be an official and, and how it can open up so many opportunities for a person who wants to be in motorsport but can't be a driver or an engineer. Yes,
5: I think that uh, what I've been able to do gets me involved integrally in motorsport at international levels and at national levels, and uh, that it really is still a sport. Uh, People for years have said to me, what's it like being a steward of V8 supercars? And I said, well, from the the inside, I think V8 supercars is a bit like, uh, it's not motorsport, it's not even motorsport business. Most of the time it's motorsport, business, uh, motorsport war, but um, for a few hours every Saturday and Sunday becomes a sport, and it's a bit like Formula One. For two hours every fortnight or so, Formula One racing becomes a sport rather than a war or a business, and uh, what I like is the um, dynamics of the people involved, that the people are, everybody involved in motorsport is doing their best and then trying to better it, and uh, uh, continuing to do so. You know, we see uh, venues become safer, we see cars become safer, we've got better um, uh, driver safety, uh, better equipment, and uh, all of it, I think, flows through to the wider community. Uh, and so it's got benefits, but it's overall there for our enjoyment and as a sport.
2: Just looking specifically at um, the Simmon Plains weekend... There are a number of uh, decisions made that not have been questioned, but have been just uh, wondering what what was involved with them. Um, I mean, there was obviously some things that were decisions made that were wrong, such as Scott McLaughlin driving uh, down Pit Lane when he should have gone onto the grid. He was specifically told to do that. Um, And then there was an incident at the weekend. I mean, both of them unfortunately involved Tim Penske, but uh, where Fabian Coulthard drove through a red light. Um, you know, they're fairly cut and dried sort of things where people have
5: quite openly broken a rule. Yes, um, but there are times that the rules don't specifically cover the circumstances and in those cases, the stewards are vested with a fairly wide discretion to make decisions which um, are in the interest of the sport. And overall, the responsibility of the stewards is to ensure that something is run safely, fairly and legally and socially acceptably. So uh, it must be in accordance with the rules. The rules are there to set a standard by which everybody runs. Everybody then knows what uh, rules govern them and govern those about them. Um, uh, We have got a complicated sport with a myriad of rules. And I again saw that, uh, for instance, there were comments uh, that there was some ignorance of the rules by competitors at Phillip Island at the weekend. uh, it's a very difficult sport and I can well appreciate that um, somebody who's got the rigours of uh, such intense competition as V8 supercars are providing these days that it's a bit easy to um, have it slip your mind uh, if the team doesn't remind you, you can do something which isn't correct because uh, you know, you're know you focused on one thing and that thing is to get your car to the uh, finish line as quick as possible. So I can appreciate the rigours uh, and the stresses of uh, being a competitor. I was for some, to, for some time, and uh, there's a need to, to make allowances for those things from time to time, but there are situations where the rules are black and white. The consequences of those are sometimes seen as fairly draconian, but as stewards we can only apply the rules that are given to us rather than make them up as we go along. And uh, if we are fair to so overly fair to somebody, it may equally be unfair to uh, the remainder of the field or others. So the rules are there to set the balance. and, uh, uh, as I say, stewards and race control don't make the rules. They run the events in accordance with the rules and the stewards impose whatever penalties and oversee that things are run in accordance with those rules.
3: Mm. Stephen, if I could talk to you about stuff that probably isn't black-letter law as far as the rule book goes, but uh, certainly you mentioned socially and and socially acceptable. We had an incident uh, in AFL football on the weekend where a player was picked up by the uh, audio having called another player something which was not socially acceptable. I I think back to uh, David Reynolds' situation at Bathurst where he made a comment which uh, people found socially unacceptable. And potentially you have the same thing with the uh, radios in the cars, although less likely in supercars where the radios are delayed message and, and certainly the same in Formula One. Do stewards get in, can stewards be involved in... Um, in a situation where a driver has been picked up, uh, let's for the extreme case say racially vilifying or uh, making a socially unacceptable comment?
5: Yes, even though there might not be a rule that says uh, thou shalt not do whatever. Um, in particular, uh, make reference to uh, somebody's mental capacity, their race, their religion, their creed or whatever, Um, there's a catch-all that says that if somebody does something which is um, contrary to the interests of motorsport or likely to damage the interests of motorsport, there's a catch-all. And uh, I was rather surprised that the AFL decided that because the player, you know, um, really fessed up and made an apology uh, soon afterwards that... um, Uh, they decided not to do anything. We've had situations in motorsport where we've had to uh, uh, impose penalties uh, on drivers who have uh, said inappropriate things, not been careful with their language during uh, live uh, radio broadcasts from the car and the like. I was always a bit sympathetic in relation to the, um, the language on the radio because, uh, to my mind, if a uh, television station wanted to put things live to air then, uh, and it was in the heat of competition, there was indeed a possibility that um, somebody who's uh, got this 1,400-kilogram, uh, 650-horsepower monster trying to kill them and everyone around them, and it's hot and it's hostile and it's noisy and it's hard to uh, control, uh, that uh, they let the odd uh, expletive slip in those circumstances was, to a degree, understandable, but um, away from the intensity of uh, competing in the car. That sort of thing isn't uh, acceptable, and um, even if it occurs in the heat of the competition, then uh, at the very least some um, incentive is generally provided to somebody not to do that in the future. Um, <laughs> I think that we 've got a sport which is remarkably um, socially more acceptable than most sports we don 't have people who uh, are in trouble with things that they do out of away from the sport we 've had uh, regular drug testing in motorsport for years, regular alcohol testing and we don 't find people who are in breach of that we don 't find people who are misbehaving Saturdays and Sunday nights or midweek and um, I'm, uh, amongst other things, a judge on the uh, FIA um, anti-doping um, disciplinary committee and that deals with um, uh, full wider compliance with um, all motorsport internationally around the world and I've been on that now for 18 months and we haven't had a case. So it just goes to show that uh, we've got a well-behaved group of people who are competitors as well as well, officials and uh, um, the uh, teams as well so that uh, we don't have that sort of trouble that comes up very often and uh, I think it's to the credit of everybody involved that people are prepared to behave much better.
2: I'd be interested in your view, Steve, on why that is that we don't have that
5: problem. Because they're nicer people?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Look, my own, my own view is that you know, unlike a ball sport, you know, there's an awful lot of money to get yourself on a paddock racing a car, whether you're 14 or 40. And and with young blokes, you know, they just don't put any of those things that too many ball sport players do, um, and, you know, whether it's getting themselves covered in tattoos or whatever, there just seems to be so much more awareness of making yourself um, corporately acceptable and making sure you don't step over the boundaries. Whereas people who are ball sport players, I mean, you know full well both in Soccer, AFL, NRL, there are boys there who just do things without a single thought of the consequences.
5: Well, you know, that's right, Tony. We've got people who, in the main, even through to the top level of Formula One, have laid everything on the line. They've they've begged borrowed and stolen as much money as they could, mostly begged and borrowed, I think, uh, <laughs> uh, more money than, than, um, than they should have to get themselves into a position where uh, they are able to compete at the high level. And I think that if you went to anybody who's in uh, one of the higher categories of the sport and you had their life story, you would find that they had undertaken huge financial risks to get there, as well as the personal risks that are involved in um, what's really a dangerous sport, and all of those things, I think, um, breed a degree of responsibility as well as the the um, innate super ability that they've got as drivers and competitors.
2: This probably leads us on to,
5: at this point, Steve, talking about your Formula 2 duties. You've got three rounds, I believe, you were talking about? Two. I do the first and the last. Abu Dhabi, uh, at the end of the. Um, Formula 2 uh, championship and um, I did Bahrain just over a week ago um, as the first round of the Formula 2s, uh, mostly their run as a support for uh, Grand Prix and it was great to go back to Bahrain a place that uh, we'd been for a number of times with um, V8 supercars and it was good to uh, renew old acquaintances there because after all the Bahraini Grand Prix officials were all trained by Australians Yeah, yeah indeed
2: and, and, and obviously it's a development category, it's not a destination category like supercars is, it's a development category so you've got a lot of young drivers, do you find that you, you, you can provide a, a good foundation for them to understand the
5: rules as you lay them out sort of thing? Yes. um, No, the FIA is um, working towards a series of um, coming out of karting into, if you uh, aim towards open wheelers, into uh, Formula 4, uh, Formula 3, GP3, move on to Formula 2 and then into Formula 1. These are people with huge amounts of talent. Uh, A lot of them have got access to huge amounts of money as well. Um, They're generally young My impression is that they're quite respectful. They're receptive of um, uh, advice in respect of uh, how to comply with the rules and um, take uh, any punishment for mistakes uh, that they make um, as gentlemen uh, and it'll stand them in good stead for um, Formula One competition in the future.
3: This year you're going to be looking at some other touring car championships, in fact the World Touring Car Championship. What... uh What's going to be your role with the World Touring Car Championship events and how different is a World Touring Car Championship event to a, an event in Australia?
5: Um, I'd be the, I'll be the chairman of steward at three of the World Touring Car Championship rounds, Hungary in um, mid-May uh, and then uh, China, Shanghai, not the Grand Prix track but a new track, and Montegi in Japan uh, as the chairman of steward's. The world touring car championship is hotly contested it's primarily a manufacturer's series um, with a great deal of factory support unfortunately the field's a bit depleted from what uh, ideally it might be and it's in the 16 to 20 uh, area rather than more uh, but um, it's quite intense competition the races are shorter generally about um, 25 laps and about 35 laps on saturday and sunday but um because of the manufacturer involvement, because of the expenses involved there, two-litre cars with um, a great deal of um, intense development. So the uh, competition in the area is quite keen.
3: Ego's any smaller?
5: I don't think there's anybody in motorsport. Officials, race control, or competitors who has got a small ego. It always amazes me that um, the size of the egos and uh, you put... Um, uh, a huge number of control freaks all in the one place at the one time and uh, we managed to get on together without uh, any dispute or arguments all because the rules set the boundaries of your own areas of responsibility and authority and you don't cross into someone else's area, they don't cross into yours and um, as a result there's a number for, there's a number, an opportunity for egos and control freaks to uh, exist side by side.
3: Kelvin O'Reilly is re- uh, Kelvin, o, Sorry, Tony. Kelvin O'Reilly is rejigging the ops manual. How much input are the stewards group as a whole having in uh, trying to clear up? Because over the last two years, it's been where there's been a gap in the rule that has brought about the most uh, controversy and the most discussion. CAMS
5: um, is involved in the... Um, uh, in- dealing with V8 supercars in terms of the rules. The rules are V8 supercars rules, they come through CAMS, Um, there's a CAMS input into uh, what the rules are. Uh, Generally, my view is that there's a desire to internationalise the rules so that they become the same as as international rules and uh, you have a seamless transition from overseas into Australia. That's not always possible. Then uh, the rules, once they've uh, passed through CAMS, are passed to the FIA for approval, and uh, anything which isn't acceptable to the FIA is uh, required to be um, thought over again. But um, as stewards, um, there's an involvement in the CAMS' input into what those rules are. But overall, the policy, the considerations in the main are those of, um, VA, of uh, VA Supercars or Supercars Australia, uh, both the board and the uh, Supercars Commission. So um, it's a collective effort, it's a consultative process and uh, there is an involvement of the stewards on the CAM side, uh, more particularly CAMS through Tim Schenken and the others that are involved. <coughs> but um, uh, really, when push comes to shove... Ultimately, it's the uh, it's the way that um, Supercars Australia wants the competition run. And all and that the we'll stewards do is enforce the rules that that are provided.
2: And and Steve, where next for you with uh, Supercars?
5: Darwin, Darwin. in Ju- in June. It's a nice place to be to come from uh, Hobart to Darwin in June. <laughs> before that, I go to. Um, Hungaro Ring, Hungary for uh, World Touring Cars, and I've uh, got a, a Shannon series at Phillip Island at the end of May. So, got a couple of things before um, I see the, the uh, supercars people again. I've got some lovely events because I do the Sandown Enduro and I do the Bathurst Enduro. So, um, both of those are, to my mind, real races.
3: The sprint <laughs> well, look, races have
5: got an artificial factor about them. When you get to uh, Sandown and Bathurst, um, it's uh, gloves off and uh, the intensity of the competition steps up a notch.
2: Is, is there also something in having so many drivers, you know, two-car event, two-driver event, is that more
5: appealing uh, to you? It opens another area for tactics and consideration so that uh, everything's done on the basis of uh, uh, how to get a team of people to uh, get... Uh, this throbbing monster from start to finish as quick as possible. So uh, there are the two drivers, there are the team managers, there are the pit crew, um, the engineers, and everyone involved. And it really does accentuate that it's a collective effort.
2: Um, we were talking before with uh, Ken McNamara about engines and the development of them. And I've only been involved in the uh, supercars since 94. Um, but one of the things I've seen through that time is where we used to see finger problems on cars you know cars breaking down because hose clamps have come undone and all those myriad of simple finger problems that uh, would happen because one of the reasons was because of course mechanics were tired they were working too long hours not enough people and now there seems to me every gamut of the series is far better run from it being the uh, team manager who says to the guys dinner time off you go sort of thing do you see that same development of the way in which not just the cars and the speed but also the way in which they're run and managed.
5: Ah, 2C, uh, um, a Bathurst race run with the whole race run in the 209s, 210s, nah, which was a, an extremely good qualifying time of a, little, a few years ago. Um, if you're not doing 10s, uh, 9s, 10s, 11s all day, you're not in there. Um, yeah. World Endurance Championship, uh, they're end now doing basically times which are uh, very close to qualifying times uh, for 24, 12 hours, whatever the duration of the race Um, and uh, Formula One has got a curfew arrangement so that uh, there must be eight hours uh, rest from uh, uh, working on the cars, which is rigidly enforced and can only be broken two times a year by a team with a joker day. Um, Yes, the whole thing has come back to a level of uh, trying to uh, get away from the all-nighters and things like that. In fact, in Bahrain, Charlie Whiting said that... um, when they were um, when they were running uh, in Formula One with Brabham, they used to uh, at some places they would um uh, work on the cars, get them ready for the race after qualifying and uh, they'd look around Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, the other Italian-based teams would uh, all wander off, they'd have their huge pasta meal and a few other um, uh, sustenances to uh, go with it and then they'd come back in three or four hours um, full as a gulgut and start work on their cars while the uh, Breton team was going away. So yes, the way that we approach things is far more professional um, far more responsible and a bit easier on those people on the side than it used to be in the past.
2: Well, thank you very much, Steve, for your time. It's been terrific to talk to you and we'll certainly catch up with you at uh, Sandown and North Bathurst.
5: Thank you very much. It's a to- uh, pleasure. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Greg.
2: And so after this break, we'll come back with our final thoughts and there's obviously been a lot of issues that came up this weekend, obviously with the... Uh, Dunlop and tyres being one of the big ones. So after the break, final thoughts from Craig and myself.
0: Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And,
5: you know, every every year I see Jackie Stewart Grand Prix and I just remind myself...
0: of of his part in in starting the the path to safer cars. dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion.
5: Jack Brabham certainly left his mark not only on Australian motorsport but motorsport all around the world.
0: Inside Motorsport broadcast on
3: community radio and online at sportradio.com.au Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. And you're listening to Inside Supercars.
2: Welcome back to Inside Supercars. Craig Revelle, Tony Whitlock. Just now looking at our final thoughts, and obviously a very big weekend for lots of issues, not just the, uh, the uh, decisions about who got penalties and who didn't, but also the very controversial issue of the tyres.
3: Well, my final thought, Tony, is that uh, drivers are told they need to read the rule book, they need to understand the rules. Across the course of this weekend, we saw multiple times when drivers clearly didn't know the rule or understand the rule. And I think now, between now and Perth, Tony, we're going to see a uh, a huge, huge uh, bunch of people, or drivers, I should say, and reading to comprehend.
2: Indeed. But the interesting thing is, it's not only the drivers who need to be reading up on the rules. I believe, and there are two teams in particular, um, one of them, the, the leading team in the series at the moment, uh, DJ Team Timpensky, there have been a number of fatal mistakes they've made. You know, this one where uh, Fabian wasn't told to wait for the red light. And and I earnestly believe that it is incumbent on the engineers and team managers. They're the ones who are sitting there with a rule book in front of them, not a steering wheel. They're the ones who aren't and shouldn't be pumped up. and They should be maintaining a cool d- demeanor about them. And there was that one, there was the one at uh, uh, Simmons Plains when, uh, incorrectly, Scotty, who was following his instincts, he drove down pit lane. Gosh,
3: it's a red flag? Gosh, you know, let's go and pit lane. Well, Ludo called him in, so, you know, that yeah, well, so perhaps I, raises I, your point. But, I, you know, I think on the Fabian Coulthard one, I'll agree to disagree with you there, because if you're driving up the road and you see a red light, you sh- it shouldn't be incumbent on someone to tell you it's a red light. You should pull up.
2: I mean, you know, drivers are reminded constantly about bit lane speeds and things like that. I I think the people who are are able to have a rule book in front of them are the ones who should be keeping the driver informed. That is one of their primary focuses. It's not only to make sure the car is fast, but also that it's legal at all times. Mm. So I I just think that a bit better management needs to be put in place. And I think probably Ryan's story would be the first one to admit that, yes, they they didn't really do it 100% well.
3: Well, that, so, that is one of the interesting challenges throughout uh, a season. And obviously the more of those you have, the less likely you are to win the championship.
2: And so that's it from Inside Supercast for this week. We've got a, uh, a week break, or was it two weeks break, Craig, uh, before
3: It Depends how you read the calendar.
2: Indeed it is. Indeed it is, but I'm sure there'll be plenty happening between now and the next time we meet up on the radio wave. So good
0: night from me.
3: And good night from him. Good night. Inside Supercars is
0: produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.